from 2 Kings 6. We'll start in verse 24 of chapter 6, so we'll read all the way through the end of chapter 7, which would be verse 20 in chapter 7. And I would really encourage you to take out the Bible in the pew in front of you. The words will be on the screen behind me, but uh, being that it's a bit longer passage, you know that I typically like to read and then go back through and uh, as we go through verse by verse. Um, this morning, I'll really be reading and then referring back to verses as we go through, but not rereading all the verses until we get to the, uh, to the main point kind of there at the end. So we're going to be reading from 2 Kings 6. We'll start in verse 24 right after we pray. Let's pray together. God, we trust your word. That is so clearly the message of your word, to trust the word as it speaks to us of Christ and his salvation. So we, we trust your word to accomplish its purposes today. We know that it goes out and comes back and never fails to accomplish its purposes, that week by week and year by year you build us by the power of your word. We pray that today you would keep those promises as you always do. Work to build your church, even this day, through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 6, starting in the 24th verse. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to, help, to him, Help me, my lord the king. The king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Then he asked her, what's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your sons, we may eat him today. And tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your sons, we may eat him, but she has hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. He said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. And the king said, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of flour will sell for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go to the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. 
At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there, for the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, We're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp, and not a man was there. Not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys in the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving. So they have left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. One of his officers answered, Have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all these Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them to find out what happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan. And they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a sea of flour sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died, just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, About this time tomorrow a seah of flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, You will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. We've seen a a pattern now, and it's easy to miss because we come here six days in between, and we come to the the text in chunks. We've seen a pattern here of, of escalating tensions between Israel and Syria. You go back to the account of Naaman, the Syrian general, and he had heard through this Israelite slave girl, he'd heard that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal even lepers. And so the, the king of Syria had sent this Naaman, the general of his armies, off to the king of Israel to be healed. And the king of Israel, when he receives Naaman, and when he receives the note the king had wrote to him, says, look, he's trying to pick a fight. He wants to have a war. We see that in the time of, of Naaman, there's this uneasy, very tense truce 
And then as we come to the passage we looked at just this, this last week, we saw that there was sort of a skirmish war, that there were bands of raiders who had come into the territory of Israel, but it, it wasn't an all-out war. There, there was small armies, but not the great big armies. But then as we come into this passage, we see that there is all-out war. Isn't this the way that it goes even our own day? Tensions, tensions begin and they boil and they boil and they boil until finally they, they boil over and then we find ourselves in a great war. Well, that's exactly what has happened with Israel and Syria. And as we come to the passage, we see that the war effort is not going very well on Israel's part. Samaria is the capital of Israel. And the Syrians have come all the way up to the capital of Israel, Samaria, and they've surrounded the city. They're cutting it off. It's like if, if we were to speak of this in sort of a street fighter language, we would say that the, that the Syrian army, Aram is, is synonymous with Syria, the Syrian army has their hands wrapped around the neck of Israel and they're just squeezing and squeezing and squeezing until there's no life left. Samaria was a city, a great fortress city, built on the top of a large hill. There's almost no way to capture a city like that in the ancient world by going and just attacking it. And so the Syrians have done really the only thing that they can do. They've surrounded the city. No one can get in. No one can get out. Nothing can get out. Nothing can get in, including food. So the city is literally, as the king says later, the city is literally starving. Now we have a difficult time because we don't really know what a shekel is worth. We don't know how much sias are and that sort of thing. And so we, we can use a little bit of benefit, I think, by taking a closer look at some of the, at some of the measures that we see here. One of the first things that we read is that a, a donkey's head was selling for 80 shekels. The average Israelite laborer worked for a shekel, got paid a, a shekel about every month. So a shekel was worth about a, a month's wages. And so when, when we read that a donkey's head is selling for 80 shekels, we're recognizing that even some of the wealthiest of the Israelites would have been paying their, their life savings to buy a donkey's head. And of course, the average Israelite worked uh, kind of on a month-to-month -month basis. They lived paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth. And so what this means is that the average Joe Israelite has no ability even to buy a donkey's head. Now, the next time Junior comes up to you and says, Mom, I'm starving, you can remind them, you're not starving until you're going to mortgage your future to eat donkey brains. Because that's precisely what is happening in Israel, and to add to a sense of the desperation, and a donkey was an unclean animal, religiously forbidden to be eaten. So even the heads, the brains of unclean animals are selling for a fortune. And then to add on to that, we have that just a liter of pea pods is selling for five shekels. It costs you five months' work to buy a liter of pea pods. Other older Hebrew manuscripts say that it was dove dung. That is, dove dung that still had some undigested materials in it which could be eaten for nutrition. You paid five months to eat bird poop. Now that's incredible. Especially when you consider that the, the average 
the average American income for a month is, is roughly uh, $4,000. So you take 80 months' wages equals $320,000. You were paying the American equivalent of $320,000 to buy a donkey's head to eat. I think it's safe to say that things in Samaria are very desperate. That's probably putting it mildly. And then as you, as you come into the next passage, you see that things are even worse than having to, to mortgage your house and your future to buy a donkey's head, that things are, are much worse. The, the general in the Civil War, General Sherman, was famous for coining the phrase, war is hell. And as you come to this, this next passage, starting in verse 26, you see that Samaria is as close to hell as one can get without actually being there itself. You have these two women, and they're having an argument. And what's the argument over? But they had made a pact. They had made an agreement. We don't have any food, so today we'll boil your son and eat him. And tomorrow we'll boil my son and eat him. It's disgusting, isn't it? It's unthinkable. It's a curse. But it's literally a curse, and it's precisely what God had promised. If you go back to Deuteronomy 28, uh, selected verses 45 and 46, 52 and 53, we read this. Remember that Kings is written against the backdrop of Deuteronomy. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. What is the cause of this, this national nightmare? Where does, this, where does this nightmare, which has become reality, where does it spring from? But it, it very clearly springs from a rebellion against the Word of God. And isn't that where all, isn't that where all of our terror comes from? It comes from sin. It comes from rebellion against God. And so we see the desperate situation, and then we see the, the king of Israel presented with this problem. He's walking along the wall. He has the sackcloth on. He's, he's mourning. He himself is in a, a desperate place. And these two women bring to him a, a problem. And it can recall to our mind what we read back in 1 Kings 3 some time ago, where these, these two women came to King Solomon and they had two sons, one dead and one alive. And they were arguing over whose son was alive. And Solomon, in his wisdom, says, give me a sword. And he takes the sword and he says, I'm going to cut the baby in half. And you can each have half. And, of course, the, the mother of the living son says, no, let her have him. And Solomon knows, in his wisdom, that the child belongs to that mother. And so Solomon responded wisely. But the king of Israel here, most likely Jehoram, he responds foolishly when he's presented with this problem, instead of turning to the Lord, though he gives lip service to the Lord, this is, if the Lord cannot help you, he says, instead of turning to the Lord for help, 
Now he says, and may God deal with me, taking the Lord's name in vain, be it ever so severely, if the son of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Instead of turning to the Lord, he decides that he's going to cut the head off the shoulders of the man of God. He blames Elisha. How stupid is that? Can't he remember that this is the Elisha who has to name another unclean animal, who has saved his bacon on multiple occasions in the past. This is the Elisha who, who led the Syrian army right into the middle of his city before. This is the Elisha who can raise the dead and make axe heads float. This is the Elisha who has been telling him exactly where the enemy is going to go. Every time the enemy wants to kill this king, every time this happens, he told the king where he was going to go. How can it possibly be? How can it possibly be that he would want to kill the one who has saved him so many times? Why wouldn't he turn and say, oh Lord, there is death in the city like the prophets had said, oh Lord, there is death in the pot. But instead of that, he turns to kill him. How can that be reasonable? What's well, not reasonable? And we see time and time and time again in the Scriptures that sin is never reasonable, and so it is with this king as well. But see, Elisha is rather aware. It helps to be a prophet when someone wants to kill you. And so Elisha is aware of what the king is thinking. And so he's sitting with the elders of the city. The elders seem to have abandoned the king, who seems to have kind of lost his mind a little bit. They're sitting with Elisha. That's wise of them. And Elisha says, bar the door so that when this king's messenger, who's really the king's assassin, comes, he can't get in. And so they, they bar the door and the assassin can't get in, but the, the assassin, the messenger, comes with a message from the king. And he says, this is verses 32 and 33, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait any longer? And there what you see is an implication. What you see is that Elisha had told the king to wait on the Lord. He told the king to be patient. That the Lord would save. But now the king says, I'm done being patient. I'm done waiting on the Lord. I'm done trusting the Lord. The Lord has done this to me. You are the Lord's representative. I am going to kill you. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But now do you see the weakness of this king? He's lost hope. He's lost faith. And he has no ability to save himself or his city. But even more than that, he doesn't even have the power to kill a person in his own city any longer. And there's really almost a parody going on here. There's some sad irony going on here in this passage. And it demonstrates for us the weakness of kings and princes and countries. My attention was drawn to an old college professor who had written this. He said this narrative, this, this story in this passage, this narrative makes an argument about the ineffectiveness of royal power in a situation that only Yahweh the Lord can reverse. As Americans, we are so often tempted to look to government first. Whether we be conservatives or liberals or somewhere in between, we look to government, to presidents or congresses or to courts. We look to, we look to these things 
to be what's going to rescue us from whatever it is that we perceive to be our dilemma. But looking to presidents or congresses or courts in our own day is no less foolish than to look to kings in the days of Elisha. Instead, we should take on our lips and plant in our hearts the word of Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. See, every four years we elect a new president. And every two years we elect a new Congress and Supreme Court justices die and parliaments come and go. But you know who never comes and goes? The Lord never comes and goes. To place your trust anywhere else is to do so at your own risk. But we see that in spite of Israel's very foolish king, the Lord is going to save Israel just one more time. And that's what we read as we move on into verses 1 and 2. Elisha promises that just for a shekel, you're going to have seahs of grain sold. A seah is about seven liters worth of grain. And so whereas before you could buy one liter, one liter of dove dung for five shekels, now you can buy seven liters of good grain and 14 liters of barley for just one shekel. What, what Elisha is promising is that things are going to get back to normal. Things are going to be the way they are supposed to be. He promises what seems from an earthly perspective to be impossible. And so you can, you can understand from a human perspective, you can understand why it is that the king's messenger or the king's assassin says, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this be? He doesn't believe it. Now, of course, he should have known that the Lord who can send manna from heaven to feed thousands of Israelites for 40 years has floodgates far more generous than he can imagine. But anyways, he says, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could, could this be? And it seems reasonable, right? I mean, donkeys' heads are selling for the equivalent of $300,000, and dove dung is selling for five months' wages. And not only that, but the city has been surrounded for what probably was well over a year. Farmers haven't been able to be in their fields for seasons at a time. Even if they could get out, there's no food to be had. It seems as though his hopelessness is justified, except that he's speaking with the one who speaks the word of the Lord. And faithlessness is never justified when we come to the word of the Lord. And so the man is going to be held accountable for his doubt. He's going to be severely punished for his doubt. He is going to see the salvation of the Lord but he is not going to taste it. And that's the way it will be. That's the way it will be for every person who does not put their trust in Christ. At the end, every knee will bow before Christ. Every person will see God's salvation. But only those who have trusted him will taste of God's salvation. And so we're about to move into the story of the lepers. The lepers will taste. But this high-ranking government official, he will only see. Because he lacked what is most important. He lacked faith in God and in His Word. And then as we move into the next series of verses, verses 3 to 15, we see what really is a, a fascinating story. And very closely related, of course, to the one that comes before it. You have these four lepers. 
And these lepers, they're pretty wise. Uh, they recognize that they have nothing to lose, right? They're standing in the city gate. They're not allowed to go into the city because they're lepers, and they don't want to go out of the city because the city's surrounded by enemies. So they're standing in the city gate, but they realize something. If we stay here, we're going to die. If we go into the city, we're going to die. If we go over to the enemy, we might die. Might dying is better than dying or dying. And so they say, well, we, we might die, so let's, let's go over to the enemy camp. We're lepers, we're gross. Maybe they'll throw us a little bit of food and tell us to get away so we don't get the rest of them sick. And so what they go is they go over to the Syrian camp hoping to find mercy. And they find mercy. But they don't find Syrian mercy. They find divine mercy. They find God's mercy. See, the Lord had brought His army again. Just in the last passage, the, the enemy had surrounded Dothan where Elisha was. And Elisha's servant says, Oh, they're surrounded. What shall we do? And Elisha prays, Open his eyes. Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opens his eyes, and what does he see? He sees that what Elisha had said was true. Those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And he sees the hills covered with chariots of fire, the Lord's army. And so here again is the Lord's army. The Lord's army, these, these chariots, these invisible chariots are marching. And the Syrians hear them. And there's a lot of them because they assume they must be the chariots of the most powerful empires in the world at that time. And they assume they must be Hittite chariots and Egyptian chariots. And they might be mighty compared to Israel, but the Syrians are nothing compared to Egypt and the Hittites. And so they do what any reasonable person would do. They run. And they leave everything behind, including their food. They leave everything behind. And they were right to run, weren't they? They were wrong in who they were running from. They were running from God, not from man. But they were right to run because God's chariots are far more dangerous than Pharaoh's chariots. And so they run. And so when these lepers come, they find food. Glorious food. Isn't that from a musical? Food, glorious food. They find this food. They find gold. They find silver. They find all these clothes. And so they do what you would kind of expect us but anybody to do. They start stuffing it in their pockets and shoving it in their mouth. And they go and hide it. And they go back and they get more. And they go and hide it. But somewhere along the line, their conscience gets pricked. And they say, ah, this is a day of good news. We should share the good news. There's a good lesson for us as Christians in there, isn't there? That we should be very hesitant to keep the good news for ourselves rather than share it. And so they are, they are compelled in their consciences to go, partly because they're afraid of punishment. Now that's a little unclear in the text exactly whose punishment they're afraid of. Are they are they afraid of the king's punishment? Or are they afraid of the Lord's punishment? Or is it both? I tend to think that they're afraid of the Lord's punishment. The king has already been shown to be powerless. But God is powerful, and so it is, it is my expectation that they are afraid of the Lord's punishment. And so they go back to the city gate, and they announce the news. There's no enemy. 
and there's food, and there's gold, and there's silver, and there's clothes, and there's salvation. Come and see what we have already seen. Come and taste what we have already tasted. And the, the word goes to the king. It's relayed. You can imagine the, the messenger going to the king runs very quickly with the excitement. And he says, O oh, king, these men have come back. And they say there's no enemy. And the king says, Bah! Ah, this can't be. And the king is in his mind, perhaps, going back to Joshua chapter 8. Because back in the book of Joshua, the Israelites had played a trick on one of the cities they had attacked. They had come up to the city and they had wanted to bait the defenders of the city to come out. And so they, they made it look as though they were surrendering. And so when the enemy comes out of the city, the rest of the Israelite army crashes upon them, destroy them, and they capture the city. And the, the king of Israel says, that's what's happened. This isn't good news. This is bad news. They're trying to capture us. They know we're starving. They know we're desperate. They want us to come out so they can capture the city. That's a reasonable response, isn't it? It's a military tactic that goes back even to Israel's, Israel's history. They know that He knows that it could happen. It's a reasonable response, except that God had said there would be salvation the next day. And so when the Lord announces there's going to be salvation, and then that salvation is said to have happened, it's not reasonable, it's foolish not to believe it. But the king's advisors, king's advisors are a bit quicker on the uptake than the king, and they say, what do we have to lose? Right? The lepers don't have anything to lose, what does the king have to lose? If we stay here, we're going to starve. If these men stay here, they're going to starve. Just send them out. What do you have to lose? And so the king sends out these chariots and the men, and they find that exactly what the lepers had said was true. They go along the road all the way to the Jordan River. There's clothes everywhere. seems the Lord's chariots had followed them quite some way. And they come back and they say that exactly what the lepers had reported was true. And we get to the clear point of all this in the final verse of chapter 7, verses 16 to 20, and I'll read those for us now. Verses 16 to 20, if I can find my right page here. There we go. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seah of flour sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died, just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow a seah of flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the, to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. Again, if we step back from the book of Kings, and we want to take in what is the, what is the main message of the book of Kings, what we see again and again and again and again is that God's word never fails. Everything that God says is going to happen, whether it be back in Deuteronomy or whether it be here within the book of Kings itself, everything that God says is going to happen, it happens as it goes. And we see just another example of this. God's Word never fails. The, the food 
is sold for exactly the price that Elisha says it's going to be sold for. And then we see as well, the people of Samaria are liberated. They're saved from certain death, exactly as the Lord had said they were going to be saved. And then we see as well that the king's messenger or assassin, he sees God's salvation, but he does not taste of it exactly as the man of God had said. And do you, do you hear, sometimes it's really good to hear the Bible instead of just to see it. Do you hear as it's read? Now remember that, that much of the first audience of those who were going to hear this would have heard it recited to them. Do you hear as you come into this the four times that the Word of God is said to be true? Verse 16, So a sea of flour sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Verse 17, And he died just as the man of God had foretold. Verse 18, it happened as the man of God had said to the king. Verse 20, the man of God had replied, you will not see it with your own eye. You will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him. Again and again and again and again. The word of the Lord is proved true. And what was the big promise which God had made? The big promise was of salvation. Now, I'm quick to tell you that I'm not so clever myself, but I am very happy to use the cleverness of other people and to make liberal use of the cleverness of other people. And so as I was reading from my favorite commentator, Ralph Davis, he, he had this very good insight on how we, how we can see concretely what is the main point of this passage. And he says that if you go back to verses 3 to 11, and you see the story of the lepers, you see a story which is full of, of parallels. And the very heart of the story, the very heart of the parallels, or the, the chiasm we might say, is what we recognize as the core of the story. And so we can see the parallels very clearly. You start the story with lepers at the gate. And then you see the lepers make a decision. They're going to go out to the camp. Then they take action on the decision. They go out to the camp. And then when you come to the end of there, what do we see? But we see God's salvation. And then you go back again and you see that the, the lepers take action. They begin to loot the camp. Then they make a decision. We're going to go back to the gate. And then the story ends with the lepers at the gate. Whenever you see this kind of a, this kind of a pattern... It tells us, this is a piece of literary genius, it, it tells us that whatever is at the middle is the main point. And what is the middle? The middle of the story, the heart of the story, is that God saves. God saves His people. He saves His people according to His Word. His people were in a desperate situation. But still, He saved them. And isn't that a comfort? We find ourselves in a desperate situation as well. Though we are sometimes numb to it, we're sometimes numb to it because we've never lived in a life which is sinless, nor have we lived in a creation which is sinless. But we live in a desperate situation because we are sinners, and we are sinners in a sin-filled world world and as sinners we find ourselves rightly standing under the wrath of God our situation is desperate we might even say that our situation is more desperate 
than the situation in Samaria. Because the Samarians were afraid of dying. But Paul says that sinners are already dead. But then good news comes. Good news came to the people of Samaria in the form of Elisha's word. Good news comes to us in the form of the gospel. But there are two great dangers that present themselves to anybody who hears the good news of the gospel. And the first great danger is to think, I don't really need it that much. I, I, might, need some, I might need some help. I, I, might, need, I might need God to kind of pick me up and let me walk. Maybe I've fallen a little bit. Maybe I'm sick. Maybe I just need Him to make me better or to use uh, maybe an illustration of a house. I need the Lord to help me kind of spruce up the place. But the reality is that we need God to bulldoze the old place and build a whole new one in its stead. The great danger there first is to think too highly of ourselves, that we don't really need God's grace from beginning to end. The second danger is to think too lowly of God's grace. We look at ourselves and we say, I'm too far gone. There's no hope for me. Now, the Lord might be able to save the preacher man. The Lord might be able to save that nice old lady who works at the soup kitchen. But not me. I've done too much. I've fallen too far. My situation is too bad and too desperate. God might be able to save other people. But He can't save me. This is too big for God. I don't know many people who would say it like that with their mouths, but I've known plenty who would think it in their hearts. And isn't that exactly what we see in this passage? We see this, this messenger assassin of the king, and he says, this is too big for God. Even if God would open the floodgates of the heavens, could what you've said be true? He doubted that God was able to provide even in this the most desperate of situations. But both those errors are really just one error, aren't they? In both those situations, we think too much about ourselves and not enough about God. Either I'm too great to need God or I'm, or I'm too bad for God to help. But in both situations, the emphasis is on me, not on God. But where does kings put the emphasis? And where does the gospel put the emphasis? And where does the scriptures put the emphasis? The scriptures don't put the emphasis on me. The scriptures put the emphasis on God. God is the one who is just. God is the one who is holy. God is the one who is good, who is merciful, who is gracious. God is the one who saves even the greatest of sinners, but only those who will recognize that they are sinners. The focus in the scriptures from in the beginning to behold I I'm coming soon is on God. And the Scriptures call us again and again and again to rip our eyes off ourselves and to cast them on Christ. To rip our eyes off ourselves, to stop looking at things with the eyes of our face 
and instead to look with the eyes of faith, to take the Lord at his word. Do you take the Lord at his word? Even when it seems to be foolish. You see, Jesus gave, his, gave what seemed to be foolish advice to his people. One of the last things he teaches the disciples is that there's going to be a time when great destruction will come upon the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And when that time comes, run. Run to the hills. Don't take anything with you. Don't stop. Go, don't go back into your house. Head for the hills. Now that's very counterintuitive. Because when danger comes, you usually run into the walls, not out of the walls. That's why you have walls, right? You have walls so that you can hide behind them when the enemy comes. But Jesus says, don't go behind the walls. Run out of the walls. It's, it's foolish advice, except that when the time came and the Romans came under Titus, who was soon to be emperor, when they came to Jerusalem to destroy it, the Christians ran, and everybody else ran into the city. The Christians were going the opposite direction. That should be a, a picture of our lives. We should often be running the opposite direction. The world is running. So the Christians ran out. Everybody else ran in, and the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and they surrounded it for so long that the people were starving, and the historian Josephus recalls and recounts and writes for us that women were eating their own children. As it happened in Samaria. It was wise. The advice that Jesus gave looked foolish. But in truth, it was wise. Do you take God at His word even when it seems like foolishness? You should. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is foolishness, isn't it? How can it be that a man tortured and killed on a cross could be a Savior? How can it be that death could rescue from death? Can't you, you see, maybe you grew up in the church, you've heard the story, it doesn't strike you as odd, but can't you see how to the person from the outside, the story of a man being killed and being a Savior just seems like absolute foolishness. Can't you see why when Paul went out to the Greeks, they thought he was crazy for talking about a man who was crucified to be the Savior for people from every nation. Can't you see how it looks foolish, but it's not foolish. It's not foolish because Jesus was perfect and His death was different. It was the perfect death. In Jesus' death, from His conception all the way to when He says, it is finished, He's perfect. He's the first human and the only human from beginning to end who never sinned. And when He dies, He says, sin's grip is cracked. And death has finally met its match. What a great irony. What foolishness that the cross would be the place where Jesus crushes the head of the serpent as had been promised in the garden, but it's exactly what was true because the Word of God goes deeper than what we can see with our eyes. It seems to be foolish, but in fact the foolishness of God is actually the power for salvation. And is a man dying on a cross to save the world, is that any, is that any more foolish than people who are eating donkey's heads worth hundreds of thousands being able to eat grain for just a shekel. Not any more foolish. 
The message of the Scripture speaks to us again and again and again. God's Word is never foolish. And it is always true. And it was true in this account. The Word of God said that the disobedience of the people of Israel would lead even to cannibalism, and it did. And it was true in that it said that this, this messenger of the king would see but not taste. And he saw and he didn't taste. And the word of the Lord, it said that the city would be rescued and that food would go back to a normal price. And it was and it did. And the word of the Lord says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will. This passage should be for us a warning. It should be for us a warning against unbelief, lest we see but not taste. And it should also be a comfort that we should take comfort in this word. We should take comfort in the empty grave of the Son of God. It should be a comfort the one who was foolish enough to believe the message of the cross. For those of us who are fools in the eyes of the world, there is hope only in Christ and in His Word. Let's pray.